The Koi Gig Pod has made a new signing. Your goalkeeping coach is your god. Emma Byrne is joining Kathleen and Karen this season. Keep up to date with all the WSL action every Tuesday and subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now then, you're very welcome. So we're going to go through the Sunday papers, as is our uh, usual want here of a Sunday afternoon. Bernard Jackman is here in studio. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming in. And Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. Dion, thank you. Good job. So uh, back pages, we'll have a look. Sunday World, uh, Nathan Collins and quite a few of them. Call of the Wild. Call to the Wild, rather. So it's uh, Jack Grealish uh, grimacing and uh, Nathan Collins looking at the ball but you suspect he knows there might be trouble. And then for whom the bell tolls, uh, Anfield apparently have told Dortmund they absolutely 100% do want Jude Bellingham. And so uh, wheels are in motion, it would seem. Uh, back page of the Sun. They have the good, the bad and the ugly. The good is Haaland's 14th goal in nine games, which is just insane. The bad is Calvin Phillips uh, dead for the World Cup and uh, Nathan Collins gets the ugly tag for, uh, again, the tackle in Grealish, which is shown there. Same picture, Sunday Independent, crying foul, it's uh, Grealish grimacing, it's uh, Collins uh, uh, looking at the ball after he's um, inflicted the damage and uh, he probably does know what's coming. And then uh, Sunday Times go a different route, it's uh, Son, who scored three in about half an hour for Spurs. 6-2 win against uh, Leicester, who really are in desperate trouble now. Three and easy, Son hits 13-1-3, 13-minute hat-trick as Spurs pile misery on Rodgers and the Observer go with something similar as well uh, picture perfect it's uh, Son again Son comes on to score hat-trick in 14 minutes as Tottenham thrash uh, Rodgers Foxes so uh, Brendan Rodgers is probably in some degree of trouble there on the Collins foul at first glance it looked as if he had driven his studs into Grealish but on uh, repeat viewing it's more the outside of his boot that largely makes contact with Grealish I didn't think it was like a driving Graeme Souness for Rangers kind of moment. No, uh, it wasn't, but I don't think it, that's going to be enough to uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> stop getting so I probably would still give him the red. Yeah, yeah like, but it is. If we're looking for, if we want some evidence that he's not, it's not a, you know, a horror tackle, that's it. But it wasn't. It, you know, I, I, like, it's, it, it, there was an element of it being a badly mistimed challenge, but um, it was still something I think you had to be sent off for. Yeah. Were you sent off? Never. Never? No, no. Never close? Close a few times, yeah. Would mistimed, you be, mistimed. Would you be sent off today? No, no, I think the game... Yeah, the game is more is, is actually um, stricter now in terms yeah. of rules. I think it's easier to get sent off now, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It was such a big thing in your career huge. to be sent off. Yeah, huge. Was Jamie Heaslip sent off against Jamie the Old Boys? He needed uh, Richie McCaw at a rook, I think, yeah, sent off. And it was like, oh, the yeah. shame. Yeah. It's shame in the family. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's easier to be sent off now and there's less of a stigma about it. Far less of a stigma. Yeah. used to be such yeah. a thing. Uh, loads in the papers to get through. Uh, one which uh, I suspect you're both interested in, coming at it from uh, different points of view, is Wayne Rooney. Yeah. This is uh, an interview as opposed to, he does uh, his columns with the Sunday Times, and this is to almost launch the fact he's going to continue doing his columns in the Sunday Times for the uh, coming season at least. So uh, it's pages 6, 7 and 8. Jonathan Northcroft has travelled over to Washington. There's a picture of uh, Rooney in his shorts and his uh, Washington uh, top and uh, baseball cap because the heat is uh, a lot over there, he was saying. So uh, not enough managers risk going abroad. They're happy to stay in England is the byline. 
and uh, they're just talking about his career, which um, has been a very interesting one. And so Northcroft uh, makes the point that he could be at home with Colleen and their four boys enjoying their new house, recharging from a draining 19 months in charge of Derby County, doing a bit of punditry, playing some golf, waiting for English football's merry-go-round to turn and the next Skybet Championship job to come up. But instead, he is here. DC United, bottom of the MLS Eastern Conference when he took charge. And uh, they remain bottom, actually, as the season's progressed. He's had uh, two wins, three draws, six losses. 11 games in his first six weeks. And uh, later on in the piece, the sense is they're building for next season because this season is uh, not going especially well. They play uh, DC uh, face Inter-Miami today which brings uh, Rooney against Phil Neville, which is just an odd uh, combination. So uh, his brief is very much to revamp them for uh, next season. DC's budget is the third smallest in the division. And uh, Rooney was saying one of the attractions is it's a very multinational dressing room and he wanted to come and experience managing that and he wanted to go uh, far afield. He talked about a, a Zoom call with Graham Potter, which went on several hours. And Potter was telling him, obviously, about his time in Sweden and what it did for him as a coach and there's uh, there's tons more in this it was a good read I think there is um, a substance to Rooney which is easy to overlook in light of uh, various indiscretions or the, the caricature version but I think when you boil it down to his football acumen it's really there it is he's, he's really intelligent when he talks about football he's got an insight into it um, and he talks about it in a way that just you, you understand, you, you glimpse immediately, this is a guy who's kind of been paying attention and has wanted to harness like the incredible natural talent he had uh, to some, you know, with something else. And, and that intelligence always shines through. Um, I find it kind of, I, I, you know, I, I agree with him completely about the idea that, you know, English managers in particular should go abroad. They haven't uh, culturally for a long time but I think now these days because the money the money in the, in England is, is so much better than anywhere else um, but I, I would say I don't okay America is abroad but I think culturally it's not going to be as huge a shock for him as uh, if he's going to work in in Spain or or France or Italy in some ways it's because it's, obviously there's a language issue those kind of things and he kind of you know he, he mentions managers who who have worked abroad but um, he's talking about Wenger going to Japan Mourinho going everywhere but it's almost like they're the place like you know Wenger going to Japan is, is what Rooney gives as an example of Wenger working abroad not Wenger going to Arsenal you know which was also <laughs> like England is home England is kind of the starting point um, but it is it is fascinating like he has, a, he, has a, he has a passage in it about how you know he's always wanted um, uh, you know he, he tries to treat his players like adults and get, encourage conversations and it's kind of a striking thing you know he says uh, um, I've had managers who the players wouldn't speak a word to and the way I work is to ask the players do you understand what I'm asking of you and if they don't, we can go into more detail and I'll ask what they think. Louis van Gaal did that. He was the first manager I had who asked the players what they thought. He'd have meetings and encourage you to speak up. Then Northcroft asks, Sir Alex Ferguson, did he encourage debate? And he says, depends what it was. Now, that's kind of amazing that it was, it was only at the stage in Rooney's career when Louis van Gaal arrived at Manchester United and the managers he'd had and the managers he's had at England 
that that was the first manager where that was encouraged. And that is clearly, you know, we know that from Van Hal, who is uh, ideological and has a firm set of beliefs about what he wants. But again, that Dutch method of arriving arriving at uh, an agree, you know, an agree, perhaps a, a preordained agreement, but arriving at an agreement through discussing it. Yeah. Um, and it kind of again shows that he was one of those managers and Manchester United didn't really fully understand what he was giving them and Rooney always did. Rooney's talked about Van Gaal in various pieces, really rates him, talks about him as the best tactician, for instance, and here he is talking about the way he dealt with the players. You suspect like Van Gaal with his endless... Um, tactical uh, nuances might have been anathema to Rooney and he's like let's just get out there and be street footballer kind of vibe but he like he fed off it he loved it he learned from it and he almost uh, in various pieces has talked more glowingly about Van Gaal than Ferguson I find Yeah well I think like that's again coming back to him as, as a manager I think there is that sense that he isn't going to be because uh, you know people will think of Rooney and you, you said it there like this idea of the street footballer and the old like he will be in the tradition of of the the sort of English football man, the old like you know, whereas he isn't, mm. uh, he is open, he is interested in learning and and advancing and being as as progressive and modern as he can be. And I think it's very important for for players who go into management because you know Potter is a really good example of somebody who's been uh, working his career or learning as a manager. Um, and players who have long careers, like the very the, the best players who have very long careers, they are kind of they have they they need to, to demonstrate that because you you can, you you will get a job on the basis of your reputation, mm. but then it comes you need something else. Even the piece starts with uh, uh, Northcroft. Uh, Jonathan Northcroft notes that the the training pitch is divided up. Uh, not just with the usual markings, but there are five lanes. So there's vertical lanes. So one on the left, one on the right, uh, middle, and then the two narrower channels, what we might call inside left and inside right, I suppose. And uh, Rooney says he uh, borrowed that from Pep Guardiola. It's, it's like a training aid. So when he's trying to illustrate to the team where they should be in certain parts of the pitch when it comes to uh, training attack in particular, he uses those. So again, he's um, he's picking up new ideas for sure. I am conscious we do have a a sports coach, you did actually, tra- you know, coach abroad here, and, and me and you are doing most of the talking. But one uh, uh, last thing, just to mention, this is almost um, it was just uh, uh, kind of striking. So both of his sons, Kai, who's uh, twelve these days, I can't believe Kai is twelve. That's uh, that's caught me by surprise. And Clay is nine. It's funny. He looks like he's assessing his own uh, sons and where they are. Uh, they're strikers. So Clay, he says, is more technical, skills, nice on the ball. Kai is similar to who I, how I was, quite raw, aggressive, short-tempered. Uh, but he's great in the air, scores lots of heller, headers, comes over the back of defenders and bullets into the net. And he says they're doing really well at their football. Kai was recently signed by Puma and has done his first uh, photo shoot for the brand. That's what my, my thought when I read that was, oh, this is a bit silly, like the Rooney name and not good for him. And it's interesting, Rooney had the same thought, but then quite a smart response. He said, I wasn't sure about him doing it, the photo shoot. But then he said, it's part of the game. When I got into the first team with Everton, I had such a shock suddenly having to deal with all that side of it. So I thought, well, if he's going to go down that route of wanting to be a footballer uh, and does make it, then advance, he's going to know that side of things. So that's why we let him do it. So even that was kind of um, smart. But the uh, slightly wild thought, Kai uh, plays in the same team as Cristiano Ronaldo's uh, son, uh, Cristiano Jr., Michael Carrick's son, JC, and Nemanja Matic's son, Philippe. 
So you've got Madich's son, Carrick's son, Ronaldo's son, Rooney's son playing in the same team. Uh, Rooney warns that all the other kids are going to try and kick them because of their uh, second names. So loads in it. You, I suspect, are very interested because yeah, you've, you've I, been I, that soldier. Yeah, but I find I find his column interesting nearly every week. Yeah, it's good. It's a really nice interview. Um, he speaks very well. I just wonder, has he the tactical acumen that he, he's going to need to have to be become a top-level manager? But um, no, it's, it's a very good piece. And, and going away, I, I agree with Dion. I don't think going away to the MLR is, MLS is massively challenging. I mean, mm. but... At least he's gone away, and, and you know he, he cites the example of Graham Potter, who went to Swedish fourth division, working his way up. Rooney will get a chance, I think, in, in, a, in a big club or a Premiership club. Mm. But um, I suppose what's going to be fascinating is has he like he speaks so well about man management, about having ideas about the game, but it's just that proof of the pudding. Yeah, like is he tactically really smart? Um, does he have the ability to motivate a dressing room? Um, it's going to be a fascinating journey to follow because any insight we get from him through this uh, column and this interview it makes you think he has the tools to do it yeah again look it's easy to come across well yeah. in your columns and in a piece where Jonathan Northcroft is is you know uh, uh, helping the piece along I'm sure but I guess we'll find out I, it's probably encouraging that he didn't take the easy option of uh, Premier League job now yeah. which he absolutely could like he could have been in for the Everton job recently and others and uh He's been very patient about it. Yeah, and, I, and in Derby, with all the turmoil that was going on there, he did handle himself very well. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a fascinating uh, journey to follow. And, you know, all, all the things we've seen suggest he has the tools to do it. But, um, yeah, he has, to, he has to get in there into the melting pot and uh, show he can operate under pressure. Yeah, I agree with that, because you are taking... Like, he did do a great job at Derby, considering. I don't know how much you would... If it wasn't Wayne Rooney how much uh, you would put by a fact of a manager doing well in MLS football mm, for, for a while. You wouldn't necessarily... No. Nobody would be, nobody would be excited. He's, he's not even doing well. No. <laughs> like, he joined when they were yeah. second or third bottom. They're still mm. second or third bottom. So no other MLS manager is getting this uh, yeah. treatment. It's just purely the profile, I suppose. But he does. He does. He is, he is, he is clearly thinking about it and he wants to... But he wants to progress and be... Sound progressive as a manager, and uh, I would you know there's a number of of former players, big name players who've gone in, and he does seem to be the one who's really thinking about it uh, in, in a way that is a bit different to the others. Well, even the point, and I guess you would have experienced this a bit, the point of well, I want to experience managing a very multicultural dressing room, yeah, because that must be different to a homogenous. Oh, absolutely, room. yeah. We had, we had 40 different nationalities in in Grenoble, um, and it's incredibly um, important that you understand the different culture and backgrounds um, ideas philosophies of, of everybody so uh, from that point of view well if, I suppose a championship side in England now or, or a premiership team in England is, is multicultural as well you sure. know what I mean so you probably didn't need to go there for that but um, his ability to I suppose get them all on the same page you know he spoke about um, he heard a group of players <coughs> low in confidence and fitness high injury rates um, he's doing less training faster sessions etc so he is obviously trying to you know, um, learn from the, the errors of the past potentially, and, and try and improve this group. But um, yeah, look at it, as I said, you know, the, the, the stereotype, or the image I had of him wasn't what I read now. You know, no. I mean? and his ghostwriter is obviously very good, but um, he does give you little tidbits that you think, well, he's 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 on a higher level than maybe I presume he goes. But I, the other thing I'd be interested in, like when, when you go when you go abroad, like the, the multicultural aspect is much more raw. Yeah, then if you're in, a, in a, if you're in a home dressing room true. with different nationalities, yeah. you're still 
it's still your t- turf, if you yes. like. And that's the difference, isn't it? Like yeah. when you go abroad, like I think all English players, they, they you know, they, they might look, uh, um, they might be interested in what players from abroad are doing or bringing to the dressing when it has obviously evolved uh, how you look at what Roy Keane has said about watching players, you know, the way they looked at foreign players came in and looked after themselves and the way Arsene Wenger changed things when he came in. But when you're actually mm. uh, immersed in it, and not just in a dressing room, but in a culture, it's a, it's a different thing. And it has always been, like, I've always felt this thing about English players, not, for, not just not managers, but managers as well, but English players. I remember from when I first started covering World Cups and being amazed when you would, uh, when you would be in a kind of mixed zone afterwards and you would see, like, this is going way back, going, and you see French players, Spanish players coming through and they would just be effortlessly talking and conversing with whoever whereas the English mentality was always it was always like the players were brought through and they were placed in front of of the English daily papers they were placed in front of then it was like they were being bundled out of a kind of you know a a security situation talk to these people talk to these people and then go Mm. you know and it was everything the the outside world they they were being kind of conditioned to see the outside world as a hostile kind of place you know, this is what you must do. You're under huge scrutiny here. Talk to these people, talk to these people, and then go, go, go. Mm. And I, I, I had a pet theory that this actually then would always manifest itself on the pitch because suddenly you would come out and find yourself in these hostile situations and you were so conditioned to being told what to do mm. and they were conditioned to being told what to do all the way through their careers. This was just the latest manifestation of it mm. that you couldn't really think for yourselves the way you would see French, Spanish, yes. all these players. So, like, I don't think talking to the press and the mix zone uh, allowed them to think for themselves, but it was it's just a manifestation of their comfort and confidence yeah. in thinking about themselves when, when English players weren't conditioned to do that. Yeah, well, from a French rugby point of view, the relationship with the media is completely different uh, in Ireland. So, we would have you know, journalists at our, our training sessions, journalists in the dressing room yeah. on training day. So the players understood their role was to grow the game and, and to try and, you know, um, increase the brand of FCG Grenoble to get sponsorship and everything. But the, it, it was a very adult-like relationship. Whereas I think, you know, here in, in Ireland at the moment, or, and maybe in, in, in the UK, it's like the press or the, media, or the enemy, you know. And, and um, again, it's, like, I, I think, I agree with you, Dion, I think, he should have maybe went to France or Spain mm. or Italy if he really wanted that, you know, challenge. But at least he's got out of England, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Did you say 14 different nationalities or yeah. 40? 14. 14. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I was, there's a danger like indulging in some kind of stereotyping. But would you have managed different nationalities or seen different trends in their personalities and managed them, therefore, differently to how you would manage somebody from yeah. different country? Absolutely. So this is a stereotype, but the, yeah. the Georgian props we had um, just wanted to be told, like, Straight, what they need to do to get in the team, you know what I mean? Like, really Nothing sugar coated, no sugar coated. Whereas, you know, a Fiji, a Fijian winger I had, and again, it's just, um, you know, very soft approach, bring him over to the house for dinner, um, you know, understand why he was here, um, understand his family situation, and and then you could give him feedback, mm. you know what I mean? Um, and that, look at it, but like, yeah, Tongans were a little bit different, you, you know, we sometimes think that the Pacific Islands are all the same, but the Tongans are incredibly different than the Samoans, very different than the Fijians. Right. Um, and you have to 
understand what's important to them. Yeah. Mm. And what would you say the perception of Irish would be in that mix? Um, so we had we had Irish. Obviously, I was Irish. We had Mike Prendergast, we had Chris Farrell, Dennis Coulson. Um, they thought we, we used to call us. The French used to say we were uh, uh, too Anglo-Saxon in our mentality that we wanted systems structure had to make sense we had to train properly Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday, Friday to win whereas they sometimes felt the French sometimes felt that that didn't really matter the preparation didn't really matter it was how you felt on the Saturday <laughs> you know what I mean and, and um, it wasn't something you could measure it was just that that feeling that um, so I remember our president used to always say on a, I always used to say I mean, on Monday he'd say la mayonnaise est bien pris ou pas which basically means the mayonnaise is taken well or not Okay, and effectively, what what he meant was um, so in France they're obviously very fond of their food, and um, mayonnaise actually is is kind of different in every region, and um, effectively it's a it's an analogy of um, you need to make good mayonnaise, you need good ingredients, and a and a good um, method. So basically, when he'd say to me on a Monday, the mayonnaise is is well taken or not, it was like, well, how is the mood of the group? How are, how are the ingredients which the players, and then the methods for the week is it. Is it um, is it a right method to beat Toulouse, for example, on Saturday? And like this was every week, you know what I mean? But it was this whole thing about you know you have the same players, same ingredients week to week, but how are they how are they mixing together? Yes, you know what I mean. How's the mood? It was, it was volatile week, volatile. To week to week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fun, uh, fun to be a coach of that. Oh, it's brilliant. Well, look at the parents. It's a great place to. Um, it's never boring over there. You yeah. know what I mean, it's not. It, 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 the changes constantly, and he changed it. He made it more difficult sometimes because there's a there's a mechanism. Myself and Ron Nagara did our did our pro coaching license together in in in, um, in Marcusi in Paris, right. uh, and uh, one of the weeks was was um, was uh, man management, and um, we spent a day on I think on a Tuesday talking about this French, very French management um, tool called uh, electroshock. Right, so basically, if things are going really well, well they can't keep going well, so you need to kind of create this, uh, they call it electroshock um, and likewise if things are going badly you need to create an electroshock. So electroshock could be the president coming in and abusing everybody or saying there's going to be pay cuts or whatever it could be but this was seen as being a really useful tool and as coaches we were being encouraged to use this regularly um, to try and stimulate this tension and you know anger and, and because that's going to get the right emotion um, and to, to use that as a tool is is well, it's, yeah. it's, it's risky and it's incredibly difficult you know? I remember in Jamie Carragher's autobiography he told a story about when Benitez arrived at Liverpool and he'd come from Valencia obviously and things were pretty bad first season they won the Champions League pretty bad season in the league and uh, Benitez called Carragher aside and said that you know would he consider doing something that had worked for him in Spain, he often used to get the Argenti- Argentinian players to start a fight mm. in the dressing room. Uh, to, again, to do that, yeah. and uh, and Carragher was like, "No, I'm not just going <laughs> to sort of punching somebody." Punch Stevie G over there. <laughs> but I, so my my manager, um, my, my my director of rugby at the start, like he used to use it all the time, and, and I'd say to him sometimes, like, "Why did you post kind of electroshock?" I'd say. <laughs> And what was the, what was the thought behind that? And he he just basically go he, like he just um, put his finger and his thumb together, and he go like basically I just had a feeling I needed it. There was no let it be honest. And like regularly, yeah, it's like instinct. Uh, instinct yeah, like, I, like he put a team up on a Monday in front of the coaches, and, and it'd be a fellow who hadn't played for about six weeks and trained horrendously, and we'd be like, why are you picking him? And he he would have no data, no. It was just just basically have a feeling. 
Wow. It's brilliant. It'll get you out of a lot of trouble, you know what I mean, if you don't have to justify your decisions. Yeah, it justifies anything. Yeah, exactly. And have you brought uh, electroshock into the cor- no. corporate, corporate, no, corporate culture? No, 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 I'm leaving it. Uh, if I ever go back to France, uh, I'll use it over there. <laughs> in France, meta or whatever. There you go. Well, um, that's Wayne Rooney in the Sunday Times. We'll take a very short break. We're back more from Bernard Jackman and Dion Fanning. Just one second. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now then, you're very welcome back. Sunday paper review. Uh, Bernard Jackman here in the studio. We have Dion Fanning as well, associate editor at The Currency. The uh, Queen's death takes up real estate everywhere, as you might imagine, including the sports pages. So, uh, for instance, one one piece which I think you both thought was quite good, gesture politics. It was Alex Massey in the Sunday Times. There are a couple of pieces. Eamon Sweeney's talking about James McLean during the week. Uh, Shane McGrath touches on it as well. David Beckham is is hanging around, as you might imagine, as well, after his uh, 12-hour queue. So uh, Alex Massey's talking more about Rangers Celtic and, uh, you know, starts things off by noting Graeme Souness in 1986 first put the portrait of Queen Elizabeth II in the home dressing room at Ibrox. It's been there ever since. Uh, the Queen's eleven, as uh, Rangers fans like to consider their club, although he does point out there was no evidence that this sentiment was uh, reciprocated by uh, Her Majesty. And uh, he notes the contrasting uh, reactions of both sets of fans during the week. There was the uh, Rangers fans who uh, unfurled the huge TIFO of the Union Jack and the Queen's silhouette and then Celtic fans had uh, sorry for your loss, Michael Fagan. Michael Fagan being the intruder who got into the Queen's bedroom in Buckingham Palace back in 1982. The other was uh, a bit easier to discern F the Crown and uh, so that was they were the two uh, reactions here. And Alex Massey says the truth is that uh, sectarian singing and sectarianism generally in between the two clubs persists because both sets of supporters enjoy it. And uh, he notes, in 2012, after yet another game of shame, the Scottish Parliament passed an Offensive Behaviour Football Act that sought to crack down on the hatred fuelled by sectarianism. It proved so unworkable, it was repealed in 2018. They just gave up, frankly. Um, he does, by the way, say... You know, further to his point that the truth is that they just enjoy it. And, he, you know, he, he says uh, the Celtic fans are not hoping the IRA uh, take up arms again necessarily. And, um, you know, the, the Rangers fans talking about uh, Fenian blood are not indicating uh, cleansing West and Central Scotland. Uh, but what he said is strip away the posing and the poison and you're left with this glum reality. Few people outside of Scotland would be terribly interested in Rangers versus Celtic. It's the manic hatred which gives the fixture its gruesome appeal. It's a fascinating spectacle because of, not despite its sectarianism. Remove it and all that remains is a derby not very different from countless others across Europe of interest to partisans but uh, demanding no more external attention than say Benfica versus Sporting or Roma versus uh, Lazio. The only thing worse than being talked about, the Glasgow Giants may agree, is not being talked about at all, so um, that's the kind of take on Celtic and Rangers in particular, and and then, like I mentioned, Damon Sweeney is praising James McLean for his stance and thought it was, uh, you know, a, a gesture of respect, but that he stood apart was offset that in a, a fairly respectful way. Shane McGrath's noting the wild extent to which hysteria is contagious, and we've seen that over the past couple of days, and then um, 
I guess of the sporting world David Beckham has been to the fore so all of this swirling around I don't know what takes your fancy well there's a lot there's a lot, of, lot in, the, in it and a lot in that Joe um, I think the, the Alex Massey piece I think is interesting because of that uh, point he makes about it you know the, the sort of performative element of it um, and I think that's something worth bearing in mind in a lot of these things because I, you know, I would have spent, you know, looked at people, you know, comments online, comments on, on various issues like this, and you would see, you know, in Ireland even like the sort of the, the sort of the Brits are at it again kind of uh, sort of stuff that comes out, and you know, I would get it would I would see it. There were part of me that think is this is this you know a worrying Anglo you know sign of Anglophobia or whatever, and I think there's an element of that. But again, as I think about it more, and I agree with that, it's kind of performative. It is it is a performative thing, uh, as he says. You know, the, the the people on either side aren't really um, looking to go back to anything, uh, or, or they, it is just it is done as much to annoy the other side. Now, you know, the the, the tools they use uh, or the devices they use to do that can be, you know, rightly some people find them objectionable and are offended by the things they might glorify. In the process of doing that, and you can look from other other rivalries and other tribal uh, um, rivalries where things are used that shouldn't be used to just you can't just say it's just tribalism. But I do think there's an element of that. Um, I think uh, the McLean thing is interesting because it's a it's a nothing nothing happened. Yeah, really, like it's uh, nothing really happened, um, and what did happen is kind of. Is kind of different to what uh, I think maybe people were, were bracing themselves to happen, yes. you know. And like Eamon Sweeney, he has a very funny line about you mentioned the F the Crown uh, banner, and he says he has a very good line about you know, an unnecessarily harsh criticism of a perfectly entertaining costume drama. But he says, uh, he says, McLean proved to be a bigger man than his critics on Tuesday. Now, I'm not sure where the critics were coming from because mm. there was a lot of preemptive support for the idea that he wouldn't wear the armband and people talking about this and uh, and again that slightly performative element that purity um, you know the, the the pure idea of you know there is no you know he is perfectly entitled because of where where he comes from to take this point of view. Um, and that's fine, but that was the sort of, and then you, you could actually see a few people saying, uh, "Oh, they were disappointed." You know, who who had been making that point then, saying they were disappointed that he had worn the armband. Are they the critics that we're talking about, or is it the people who would have criticised him if he hadn't worn it? And I think going into a bigger, it is interesting because this is the kind of struggle, this is the tussle that all you know, these areas kind of ultimately come down to, because I thought it was interesting, I was watching Mary Lou MacDonald on uh, on Virgin, I think, during the week, and she was being asked about, like, and Sinn Féin, and I think it would have been, like, Sinn Féin, the way they have have dealt with the, the death of the Queen has been incredibly respectful. Yeah. You saw, you know, Prince Charles, or King Charles's interactions with Michelle O'Neill, and there was an Alex Maskey's t- uh, welcoming of him, and it's been incredibly respectful. Now, Marilyn McDonald and Virgin was asked if she was worried. Some, I can't quite. Was she worried that she would have alienated or upset 
some Republicans with this stuff. So that is the yes, the uh, that is the tension that you're always trying to deal with. Well, and I, she said, no, she came and said, no, I'm a United Islander. And I would say to people who are actually of that point of view, there's one thing I would I would wonder looking at this. What do you think would happen? What do you think we'd be doing right now if it was United Ireland? You know, maybe. Like because the flag at half mast and a minute silence, or I think we had a minute silence in the doll or whatever, that wouldn't be. We'd be accommodating a million unionists. Uh, we would have events called off. We would have various things in the United Ireland. Now maybe that everyone would be so happy. Everyone who wants United Ireland would be so happy to have United Ireland that they would be happy to accommodate that. Maybe that's the case, mm. but. Who knows? Like, may or, or do we actually make these gestures as Sinn Fein are doing now, kind of saying, "Look, we can accommodate those things." But that's the stuff that I think the people who want the the, the pure version of whatever ideology they hold to probably need to address more than more than people like you know McLean, who did the you know who did. I, I like as Sweeney said, he did. He got it. You know, he got it. He got it right. Like, and he managed to negotiate that path by being true to what he believes in, while also being respectful of somebody who uh, is probably you know that's a, a, a worthy gesture of respect. Yes, uh, Shane McGrath was making a similar point. Although he did say, "Okay, this one's navigated, but don't worry, poppy season's just around no, the corner, yeah. James." And we'll go back into that porn, performative stuff again, all around. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Well, again, and that's the sort of and McLean, like, and I would support his position from his point of view on the poppy. Yeah. And again, it is a media-driven thing. As somebody who lived in England for a long time, and I would have a different, I would have my own experience of living in England. I, I, I loved living in England. I ne- poppies weren't. Now I lived in London. Poppies weren't a thing I ever encountered, ever felt. You know, any pressure to wear, any need to wear. There was no, but it is a media-driven yeah. thing. And that's the problem if you're a public figure like McLean, that is the issue you have to deal with. And uh, it probably is one of the reasons why the Premier League got it so badly wrong in terms of calling off matches in the first place, which which Eamon goes into talk, talk about, Jay McGrath talks about, because they were so worried about the media reaction rather than the actual feeling of people, mm. which was quite sophisticated they can accommodate and I know plenty of English people British people um, who are who are kind of upset or are sad without necessarily being the kind of you know some of the kind of more sort of extreme uh, royalists you might see being interviewed but who are generally reflective about about this time but they could actually accommodate that while it's going on going on with their lives but the Premier League saw the saw the the headlines saw the the, the 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 kind of the the poppy that poppy version of the media coming into play again here and acted like they were they terrified did. Yeah. terrified yeah um, you did want to touch on David Beckham <laughs> I did I really did um, um, David Beckham I, I David Beckham lifted gave me such a boost this week on Friday I think it probably came too late for some of these people to write about it I just felt. Do you ever, um, you know, when you see a master at their craft? (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever kind of see a magician or something close up, get pulled out of the audience for a magician? I remember being in a restaurant once and there was a magician working there doing sleight of hand and you're up close and you're going, this is a a master at work. This is a master at work. Like, 
it's one of those ideas, like it's just one of those things that people will be looking at. It's like one of those great kind of uh, inventions. People be like, why didn't we think of that? Every celebrity, every celebrity in Britain, their thought on Thursday and Friday would be, how do we skip the queue? Yeah. How do we skip the queue? And David Beckham, who we were going, we might talk about Qatar in a bit. And like, if you if you Google David Beckham, you'll see the, the criticism he was getting for his his videos in support of Qatar and all that kind of stuff. Hasn't got his knighthood. All these things that he was dreaming of. Beckham just flipped that on his head, or somebody working for Beckham flipped it on his head and saying, "You don't need to skip the queue, David. You need to join that queue." And it was just, I just looked at it and went. That is that is just a master of his craft. You know what's quite interesting is um, I, like it's 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 a, a weakness of mine, but I do uh, enjoy a, a, a ten minute trip to the Daily Mail showbiz section and the comment section reveal much about like the world that we're living in. You know, and Beckham has not been popular in there for quite a long time now. They really don't like him, and a bit like you, I thought, well, this is a fair. This is a, not, a stunt is harsh, and I think he's he's, he's well meaning in some respects, but he could have skipped the queue and maybe he knew that he would garner some attention by not. And I thought, well, it's a transparent enough uh, thing to do. But honestly, the Daily Mail readers swept away in this kind of week of weeks. Like, there's lots of Everyone's swept away. But it's like, not just Daily I'm telling you, in everyone, Britain and Ireland. It's, are it's, they're full of like, look, I'm no fan of Beckham. <laughs> but I tell you what, he queued up. And, but also, not only did he, not only did he no fan of Beckham, but now, and now they're saying he queued up. He's now just put into sharp relief all the people who didn't queue well, up. Sorry, Holly Willoughby and well, Philip Schofield yeah, had to come out and say, we were, we were there in a working yeah. capacity. We didn't skip the queue. <laughs> like, this is the... Well, when, you, when you have 10 days of a news cycle, yeah. It's, yeah. Too, like, it's too long for the modern world. Like, there was, there was a point on... Well, there's been Pengate with Prince King yeah, Charles, I sure. guess, or that whole thing. But even on... Um, Two nights ago, like Sky News had to do like, you know, 20 minutes on the lack of inheritance tax and, you know, how all this works. And I was thinking this is like they have to fill the news cycle. They can't do 10 days morning again because can you imagine in the palace, their their head in their hands going, oh, my God, they're talking about the inheritance tax. We're not paying all that kind of stuff. Have you been kind of watching the week? I I think from a human nature point of view, it's an interesting thing to watch. uh, Beckham, I think, is is fascinating because um, Alex Ferguson tells a story of, um, so basically one of of Alex Ferguson's kind of three behaviours that he hired or fired by was um, Team First and he obviously went to London to meet Beckham's parents and Beckham was a 13-year-old or whatever, so he's normal, he he knew him a long time. So apparently Beckham had a, a gold celebration that Sir Alex Ferguson had seen since he was 13 and it was you know, with his teammates, and I'm not sure what age he was, but it was a year before he sold him. He uh, Beckham scored a goal one day in Old Trafford and ran towards the corner flag, dived on his two knees, hands over his head, and his teammates chased after him. And Sir Alex Ferguson was just noticed that's a bit different, so he called him in Monday morning and said, um, "David, when you scored a goal on Saturday, what was the story with the celebration?" And Beckham said, "Oh, yeah, my agent told me." That's the way I should celebrate because that's going to get me on the front page, front page, back page. He was going to have posh, uh, posh boys at the time, and um, Ferguson allegedly said to him, "Look, that's not how yeah. United operates. You know, you, you celebrate with your teammates. If you score a goal, someone passes you the ball. Um, if you score a free kick, someone won the free kick. So apparently, for a year, uh, a, a year or so, he actually went back to celebrate. He didn't score that many goals, but he celebrated as he had. And a year, a year and a half later, um, he scored a goal, bang towards the corner flag." So Ferguson called him in Monday morning and said, what's the story? We spoke about this last year. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, I've spoken to my management team, my wife, my, my parents, and I've decided 
for me, this is how <clears throat> I'm going to celebrate because it's about my brand. And Ferguson said, well, I'm going to have to sell you. And um, basically, Ferguson went to the board and the board obviously didn't want to sell David Beckham. Yeah. And he said, well, it's him or me. And, and he sold him. So, you know, that's the, when, I, when I saw Beckham doing that, I was like, okay, is he doing that? Because his team around him said, that's the right thing to do for your brand or is it something he came up with himself? I don't know. Still, wow. whoever came up with it, he was the man who had to queue yeah. 12 hours, whatever it was, 10 hours. What is, what is it now? 24 hours? It's, uh, 12 hours to change, it's like spinal change the whole perception hours. of the public about, about you. It's probably well spent. That's 12 hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, I think you've the mail on Sunday. I handed it over to you. But on the back page, I can, I can mainly speak from memory. Throw it over to me if you have it, Dion. But uh, it's interesting that the English FA... Have uh, it's reported here. This is the back page of the mail, just in light of Beckham. Because I, I, did you see his very fancy guitar video the other week? I mean, it really was quite something. It's all over social media. I don't think he put it up on his own um, pages. Interestingly, uh, finally, FA join guitar protests. So after criticism for not speaking out, English football is now poised to condemn World Cup posts and could call for Qatar compensation. So this is Rob Draper, back page of the Mail on Sunday. Uh, in effect, it seems, the uh, the Welsh FA a couple of weeks ago called for a migrant workers' centre to be established in Qatar after the World Cup. And now the English FA are going to join with that. Harry Kane is going to speak to the likes of Christian Eriksen and Virgil van Dijk and Hugo Lloris about some kind of joint symbolic gesture. And... Um, Amnesty International have called for a compensation fund to be set up to support families of migrant workers who died while working in Qatar. Uh, Many have received no compensation because there was no post-mortem and their deaths were not deemed industrial accidents, but simply natural causes, even though they were relatively young men working long hours in extraordinary heat. So, um, you know, I guess for, for Brand Beckham, the Qatar thing looks like it's really heating up probably at a time when he's going to have to do more and more of these videos and be uh, to the fore. So how he navigates that one I don't know, and that that like that is such a mark against them. In fairness, it is. It doesn't uh, it doesn't really surprise me. Um, um, for reason, you know, you, you look at his, his career path. There's, it doesn't surprise me that that's where he's gone. He's not the only one. Um, like those protests or those those stances that players and, and teams are going to take it would be interesting it doesn't change the and I know Amnesty don't talk about it, you know or don't encourage a boycott or anything like that but I do think um, you know the, the fact that it's taking place you know, we've gone through this yeah, like sure. it's taking place here uh, it's, it's 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 wrong um, and you know players can Take those those stances. I think once the World Cup begins, um, again everyone will will lose themselves in it. They may make they may make the occasional nod towards um, what's going on, but I think again just the uh, the drama of it will probably and you you probably see David Beckham at that point, and you'll be thinking, oh, that's a or people will be thinking that's a good video. That's when they'll come into their own when he's around the place offering, going to being the, a, a front man for very, you know the World Cup yeah. and the country. But um, it's uh, it's going to be you know it, it's 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 not going to really dent what the objective was in getting the World Cup there. The Sunday papers on off the ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.
There is rugby aplenty across the papers. First weekend of the URC, so there's match reports on Ulster beating Connacht, on Munster losing their first match under Graham Rentree, and deservedly so. They weren't uh, good at all. I know you watched that game. I saw a piece, I was reading the uh, Sunday Independent report, and it said the scoreline flattered Munster, actually, was the way they put it. It said it was um, sloppy in the extreme, bad at the breakdown seemed to be the point and uh, Munster very very average but I guess the question especially this time of the year with the URC you have to ask of every game is did both teams have their strongest team out or what was the lineup or what was the preparation yeah so M- Munster had um, their internationals the fellas who went to New Zealand New Zealand weren't, weren't available um, for instance Cardiff Cardiff had like Sefalatau playing so they had a stronger team on paper I, I think it was the, the content of the performance will Will obviously disappoint Munster. Um, Aerostrewn, uh, a lot of knock-ons, difficult to um, build any kind of momentum. But I, I think you know they are changing how they want to play. Mike Prendergast has come in there. Um, he's trying to inf- uh, implement his strategy. Dennis Leamy, his defensive strategy. So it's going to take time. And also they've had a incredibly short preseason, which didn't help. But they gave the players a week off last week for Peter Manny's wedding, which was. I think agreed before um, Graham Rountree got the uh, head coach job so yeah slow start um, I suppose it's to be expected but we kind of have become a little bit used to Irish teams being able to go away in the URC and win and so I think from a result point of view when you think about this cup that's happening um, in uh, Toyota Cup that's happening later on uh, this month Munster are going to lose some players for that their internationals might still be away so points are actually precious so they got one yesterday but be disappointed not to pick up four so of this Toyota Cup and uh, people will have seen this bubbling away this is uh, an emerging Ireland squad I guess is the official title will go to South Africa uh, during the season and play uh, three matches in front of a couple of thousand people you say in your piece in the Sunday Independent if they can give away enough discounted or complimentary tickets uh, it's the Curry Cup team's uh, the Greekers, the Pumas, the Cheetahs, they're no longer dining at the top table. The level of competition our young players will face will be far weaker than what they would have been up against if they had stayed at home in their province. Uh, the tour clashes with two derbies, you make the point as well. And uh, you're right in the piece and it's the headline. You can put lipstick on a pig, it'll still be a pig. And this tour, in my opinion, is a pig. Yeah. It's, um, it's three pigs. And that's it's, it. an, it's an amazing, uh, <laughs> it's an amazing tour. Um giving the timing you know normally tours happen at the end of the season um, the provinces are already used to being cannon fodder to a certain extent for the national team um, in terms of the way they have to supply players but also foreign player uh, restrictions etc um, return to play protocols so Johnny Sexton you know his game time is managed which is which is fine it, um, but they understand that but this tour happening you know later this month um, I think Look, it's been railroaded in. There's been very little communication. Um, you even wonder, like, was this some kind of like agreement connected with South Africans yeah. joining the URC? Like, what's the why is well, this originally, originally blossomed? This, yeah. Um, so the problem is the the provincial head coaches and coaching staff obviously can't criticise. But they hate this. They hate this with a passion. Yeah. But they're not allowed to say it. Sure. They hate it with a passion um, because there's been very little communication. And now what, what's happened is because they hated it so much, um, there's a compromise situation where the players who are going there are by and large not the players that originally Andy Farrell or David Isfor thought should go. Right. So hence why go you know, why go? You know, so basically of the group are, that, are they lesser Yeah, they're lesser quality. They're, they're they're um because it's basically the province has said, look at um we would play XYZ 
in these derby matches. That's far better for them. Yeah. Um, so it's effectively the people who wouldn't have played the derbies now, except um, uh, Kieran Frawley, uh, Joe McCarthy. There's only two or three guys who, two or three players who potentially would go to New Zealand. But this, the, the objective of this tour was to add more depth. But you're actually giving game time to players who are outside the the thirty odd in each province who play. So um yeah, it's amazing. I think like obviously when you only have five stakeholders, the national team and four provinces, you would think communication would be um really easy to happen, uh, really easy to make happen. But in actual fact is it's kind of dict- dictatorial. And um look at Ireland are doing really well, the provinces are more than competitive. So it's not a crisis, but it's just an example of um I think poor communication and mixed meshing. Yeah, and even if Kieran Frawley was to go and play brilliantly, what does that mean? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. He would have been better off playing for, for Leinster in the URC, I think. Uh, right beside that, by the way, Dion, I think you both picked this out. So uh, there is a conference next week on um, concussioning, as UCD, and, on Saturday, and uh, Dr. Michael Collins is coming over, and he is involved with the University of Pittsburgh uh, Medicine, and uh, he's an expert in concussions. So in the main, Brendan Fanning is uh, talking with him, and I suppose what, what jumps out is uh, he, he's making the point that the treatment of concussion is changing uh, radically at the moment. They see 20,000 people a year in their um, particular um, hospital who tend to go back and be fine. But I thought which, what jumped out, he was saying, for instance, like rest, which is generally the prescribed um, solution for somebody with concussion. He said rest is not actually one of our treatments. And he's advocating uh, specific treatments for different people. So, you know, if you're somebody, for instance, who has migraines or if you're somebody who gets uh, car sick easily or uh, has a lazy eye or a dizziness, for instance, or if you have anxiety, you're in the increased risk class and you might be treated different to somebody uh, who doesn't uh, have those issues. So um, I think a part of the chat at UCD is he's going to outline different treatments for different uh, people. So uh, he kind of uh, sounded a, a note of maybe optimism that... You know, this, this existential crisis, and it is existential for rugby, um, with better treatments, we, you know, um, will be able to be uh, absorbed a touch more. Yeah, the, that's, he, there's a line in it, in Brendan writes about him that he says, you know, they're all, they all over this game-changing scourge like a rash. Indeed, when we present our glass half-empty view of the world, he tops it up to the brim and hands it back. Um, and rugby is like praying for the, this kind of news. Yeah, now I wonder, and, and Bernard will know, will be able to answer this, and I, I don't know at all, but like again, this idea of horses for courses, treatment in anything, but like in a, in a sport like that, it's going to, that's going to take a long time and presumably resources to be able to, uh, for that to kind of filter into into the game. Um because we know in every in everything in, in in areas much less important than this that people are dealing with are are treating injuries or treating are doing are you know sports science that may be out of date by the time but but it sticks and ideas take hold and in something like this how you actually get to a point where you would say right this is this you know your treatment uh, we need to kind of develop a um, a bespoke treatment for for you for your concussion versus somebody else like it does seem like it is hopeful but again it seems like I don't know how easy that would be to actually get to yeah I, I'd imagine that the problem would be 
training up people who have the level of expertise to be able to make a decision on an individual yeah. basis. So if you look at it at, uh, at the moment, it's mainly a white label. You know, everybody's treated the same. Mm. And obviously, you know, Dr. Michael Collins is, and his research team have, have developed, you know, um, a roadmap for, to be able to give individual advice. But um, how quickly that can be taught or the expertise can be can be improved across the world but I mean from a, just a personal point of yeah. view like on Wednesday I was in a, in a school for a blitz an under 13's blitz and I saw a group of kids playing off to the on a pitch on the side and I said oh why, why, why are they over there why aren't they playing the blitz and, and there were 12 kids whose parents said no I don't want my son to do contact you know and I hadn't you know I suppose traditionally I, they wouldn't come out you know they, you'd, so you wouldn't notice but and I, and I straight away hit, hit home me oh well there's there's Twelve parents, or sorry, twenty-four parents who are um, worried about uh, not just concussion, but uh, you know, contact sport and, and injury. And um, so, I'm sure that's conversations that are happening, you know, across the world with, with parents and kids. Yeah. Well, it. even and you can pick up the point, yeah. but further to that, like even just a, a glance at this Brendan Fanning piece before he gets to the chat with Michael Collins, he outlines uh, a study just published in a medical uh, journal, Neuroimage. It's revealed that children with a mild uh, traumatic traumatic uh, brain injury, if that's not an oxymoron, but with a mild traumatic brain injury, 15% more likely to develop an emotional or behavioural problem. And this is coming from a 10-year study following kids through to early adulthood. So, I mean, if even the prospect of a mild TBI is uh, resulting in some kind of emotional or behavioural problem, then that group of kids on the side of the pitch is going to grow exponentially over yeah. the next generation. Yeah. And I suppose we don't have um, enough PR or, or studies around what the benefits of sport are. So, you know, so you're kind of just looking at that and you're going... Um, and sorry, yeah. you have parents saying, well, my kid's not heading a football either. You know, like it, it will sure. apply to lots of sports, of course, yeah. but certainly rugby will yeah. be near top of the pecking order. It's so popular in this country. Yeah, yeah. no, it really, it really home to me just seeing those kids out there playing rugby, but not obviously part of their, the other group as such. Yeah, and isn't rugby's issue that there's just no way to separate the physicality no. from the sport. Because that's what a lot of people love about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, again, I'm talking to people in rugby about this in the past, like that idea that, you know, being, create, being, being, taking the knocks yeah. and being, you know, being able to withstand them is actually, is a, it's, a, it's a test. Like, it's, yeah. a, it's how dressing rooms, is how, in, in all sports in different ways, but that is the way yeah. they've, you know, you've, you've gauged who do you want alongside you when things get tough? And this is essential, but it's also, uh, and you know, has to totally subvert yeah. that way of, of being conditioned into thinking about sport. Here's an unfair question. I don't want you to class you a spokesperson for anything. or And this is not like a, this is anecdotal, your answer. Yeah. But I was just chatting to someone about this whole issue uh, generally, and they were of the opinion that actually the number of head knocks in underage matches is nothing like we see at senior professional level where we see them all the time that it's that it is a different sport is that yeah. your sense no, of the no, so game? I'm very lucky I'm, I'm involved in, in school rugby so I've seen under 13s under 14s under 15s under 16s under 18s over the last two weeks and it's a completely different sport honestly I, I have, I'd say I've seen one head knock in in that you know over the last month and why is that? Um I suppose there, there's, there's more space, there's more time. So the, the professionals we see, um, they're incredibly well conditioned. They understand um, their speed to feet. They actually, it sounds stupid, but um, in, the, in the amateur or underage game, you know, 
there's a lot more space because players aren't as fit. Aren't as fit. Yeah. They they go to the breakdown. They stand closer together. There's actually space to run to. Um, whereas the professional game, effectively, you know, it's 13 guys in the front line, two players in the backfield. Um, they try not to go to defensive rooks, and there's no space. Okay. That, that, that's the very simplified version of it. So is that will will professional will rugby at that level end up becoming a longer game with fewer players? Is that a solution? Is there a way to actually make it well, yeah, that you well, get more space? Yeah, no, like. So people have spoke. Tony Ward um, suggested that we go to thirteen, you know, but that didn't really get any. Um, that was any more traffic. for um, the quality well, of the yeah, spectacle exactly. as yeah. opposed to safety. Well, safety yeah. might be a stronger argument. Either. Yeah, stronger. May, may, yeah, it may be, but um, certainly at the moment, in, in, at, at elite level, there's very little space, which creates more head. I think more head cushions. Okay. The Sunday papers on off the ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. It does link. I don't know if we want to go to the Dennehy yeah. piece because I think it, there is uh, there is a link there because he's written a piece about uh, why, unlike in athletics, drugs talks isn't something dependent as well. Drug talk remains off the table in most sports, and you know there's a lot of points he makes. It's very good piece but just on the rugby point he talks about uh, a few years ago I met an old pal from college who these days works in rugby the conversation turned to doping and I asked about the wave of positive tests in the UK and why it was all B-list players but no stars he claimed doping was rampant at an academy and sub-elite level where testing was minimal and players used steroids to build physique the majority of gains in size and strength were retained as they entered professional ranks where given stricter testing they went clean now when you link that to, when you link the that to concussion, you know, like there is, like I think doping is a really interesting area now because it's one of a, a number of areas in, of professional sport where you can say, like, what is, what are we, what is the issue? You know, what is is it cheating? Uh, is it is it damage to your health? What is it like? What is the problem? But when it, when it comes to rugby and and this something like this, it's like well, it's dangerous. Safety, yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, uh, like I, you know, and the, and the you know, I think the, you know when you look like I, I think <laughs> basically it's against the rules. Like, but that's why you should be against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not something you want. You know, when you think of of. You know, sport is not something you associate with sport, but then there are so many elements yeah. of professional sport that you don't associate. That you you actually, if you, you look back as a at a kid playing sport, you think, God, do you want to be exposed to all these elements of professional sport? Um, but on this issue, on this one thing, I think it, it is uh, you can see why it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. And you know, his point is that athletics and cycling are areas where these things are addressed, and why. Aren't they addressed anywhere else? Yeah. He mentions, you know. Well, we you should, you know, we'll come to the wider um, sports he mentions in a moment because it is amazing how mud doesn't stick with certain sports, yeah. and and it's really you know they stick with others. On his characterization of, or well, the person called and he spoke to about rugby that is is sense Bernard is it's uh, those players, those individuals trying to break through to the elite level that they are the the prime candidates to take steroids or whatever needs to be taken to bulk up, and then once they reach the elite level. 
they have, you know, they, they, they manage to maintain their gains and then they stop. Would that be your sense of the landscape or what is your sense of the landscape? Um, look, at you, you, I suppose, uh, and again, I'm not saying it's not drugs in, in Irish rugby, but um, certainly in a, from a coaching um, kind of point of view or coaching network, we would have always been sus- suspected some South African players of potentially in schoolboy level having taken taking steroids, you know, to get to the, the the professional level. And to be fair, the testing at the, uh, yeah. what's the week called? Craven Week. Craven yeah. Week. Yeah. Staggering percentage of right. young players. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the gains they could get from playing well in Craven Week in terms of getting on the, in, in a professional level. And I'm not, look, at, uh, that's, um, it's everywhere, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, I, I don't, the testing is, is not uh, fit for purpose, really. I think there's obviously, it's not like, just because people aren't failing tests doesn't mean that, there isn't drugs in in rugby. I I don't think. Um, but again, the problem, as Dion says, is in like if you, if if someone you're playing against has taken you know steroids, that's highly dangerous. Mm. You know, it's, it's not a fair advantage. Whereas when I if I watch the Olympic hundred meters final, uh, you know, I probably just presume that there's been a lot of drugs <laughs> taken. But I, I want to watch mm. a fast race. You know what I mean? Uh, but it's not dangerous for for the other contestants in terms of they're not going to run into each other yeah. you know it's obviously dangerous for their health so um, but yeah what I struck me about this is like I forgot about Ant- uh, Antonio Conte um, and his links or sorry the, the his links with um, the club doctor uh, who got a suspended sentence you know t- uh, I forgot about Tyson Fury yeah. you know having done um, well, he's been you know, banned. banned for yeah. uh, and so it's, it seems to be everywhere, you know. Well, it, the point of his piece, so I, 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 like for instance, uh, Paul Kimmage two weeks ago was saying, you know, that the, the lack of talk of doping around the European Championships was very striking, and uh, I guess Carl Denny's making the not unfair point. Pretty striking uh, in all the sports beyond the big two, cycling and athletics. So, uh, when you see Pep Guardiola, do you ever think about his positive test for Nandrolone? which once saw him handed a seven-month suspended prison sentence, later overturned an appeal. When you see Conte, do you ever think about his time at Juventus where club doctor Ricardo Agricola got a suspended prison sentence, also overturned an appeal for providing performance-enhancing drugs to players, that's plural. Um, when you see Tiger Woods, do you ever think about the relationship he had with Dr. Anthony Gallia, who pled guilty in 11 to trafficking unapproved drugs like human growth hormone? What about rugby? And he mentions, do you ever think of how 46 athletes across uh, 12 sports currently banned by uh, UCAD, of those uh, 46 athletes, 27 are rugby players. Uh, let's go to Tyson Fury. Do you see him as one of the greatest heavyweights of all time or a doper who served a two-year ban for Nandrolone? And on it goes, um, mentioning different people. And uh, his sense is that at least cycling and athletics are trying to catch uh, those involved because he mentions the famous um, Operation Puerto and 2006 and the doctor uh, Fuentes at the centre of that he was interviewed it was a rare interview on Spanish television not so long ago and he was asked about his relationship with soccer clubs in the mid 2000s and he was asked did you advise the doctors at Valencia and he said no you advised the doctors at Real Madrid Fuentes paused shifting awkwardly I'm not going to answer that question so um, it is amazing how some sports like Teflon and this don't even acquire like kind of a, a strong reputation let alone um, certain well, misdemeanors yeah. being caught he says you know the pub- here's the thing the public perception of a sports doping problem is based not so much on its pre- prevalence as its authority's willingness to expose it mm. um, 
Now, I think people might dispute at times how willing the cycling authorities were, but they had no choice. Maybe laterally. Yeah. Um, And he says that, you know, other sports have learned from the point of view of what happens to a reputation of a sport if you do expose it. Mm. I think there's an element of truth about that in that. Uh, I think I think ultimately um, and it goes back to the tribalism point, I think ultimately if if people were exposing doping in football, say, it would just become another uh, mm. uh, tribal uh, talking point. Mm. Like it wouldn't be um, I don't think people would be. Uh, uh, they wouldn't turn on their. They team. wouldn't turn on their no, team. No, no, they would. They would. They would use it as. A, they, would, they would find a reason. We know this from every area of life yeah. now. That whatever evidence you're presented with, mm. you will look at that evidence to fit your own to fit your own uh, belief system. Do you um, sense? I'm sort of like basing this almost on interaction with the show or just talking with different people. There was that time when, like, Lance was, you know, the most vilified person in world sport and he was being chased down and his end was coming. I felt like at that stage, you know, sports fans were so staunchly anti-doping and it was, like, the number one issue and, like, this... I feel like now there's, like, a fatigue or a kind of a... uh, Of course everyone's doping. Like, so what? Kind of an attitude increasingly amongst the masses. Like, not as outraged by it. Not like, oh, my God, Lance, that's the most awful thing I can imagine. And now I just think there's a degree of it's, yeah, but a, a, like you know, Tyson Fury is a good like there's, there's, in a lot of big sports, all the you know football. Let's talk about football for a second because it is the players are are, are cartoon characters. You know, they're not necessarily people that you want like that anyone is actually relating to. Or anyone cares about their and we've seen it in 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 issues that are, are, are far worse than doping. Um, you know that people will defend they're prepared to defend anything look at Newcastle United supporters and how they defend Saudi Arabia yeah um like people will defend anything so I think there there is an element where the the people just see amorality as kind of priced in to maybe that's high level sport I don't know and maybe maybe it is that that element that that has bec- mean that men or else it's just become as you say it's also just that it's fatigue maybe. it's fatigue I think, think though also that maybe the sports washing aspect or things like the Kinahan involvement in boxing that like other issues are bigger or more serious in, in some respects than an individual who might be doping but again it comes back to and I, I'm only what is what is our what is the issue with doping well, I suppose the big two would be, one, it destroys the fairness and the integrity and that's so unfair on the clean athletes. And then two, probably lots of vulnerable types uh, damaging their own health. Mm. They'd be the two, I yeah. think. But I would say, I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's, uh, I think, you know, and I think it is, it's the idea that you have to, and, you know, we've seen, we've seen it in cycling, you, are, you know, the idea that you've, you have to, you know, the, Tyler Hamilton being the book I remember most yeah. of this, this, you know, this thousand days where you go from, wide-eyed, innocent, idealistic cyclist who I need to do this. Are you in or are you out? Are you in or you you're out? And that being, being and I, you know, and, uh, but, uh, like, I, it's just one of those issues where as, as professionals, as I'm saying, as professional sport becomes muddier mm. and muddier mm. uh, and, um, like, I, I've, you know, I don't know if I would want my son to be a professional sport, like, 
like you know f- football or even you know without dope you know it's just the the world it's a, it's a it's a it's a dirty world yes. and this is one aspect of it as a dirty but there are so many elements so th- to go back to your point like yeah. this is one of them the health risks Again, people are doing things in professional sport all the time. Yeah, that isn't like we talk about sport being a force for good. Professional sport is it? Is it necessarily like but it's not? It's not? It's not a, a way to a, a lot like a good healthy. No, lifestyle. well, I remember chatting to Shane. Hor- remember, Brian Driscoll was in here and he was talking about all the painkillers that were, were taken as a matter of mm. course. I remember I was on Virgin that weekend and I was chatting to Shane Horgan about it, and he said he said this publicly, so I'm not betraying his confidence. And he said. Um, Professional sports not good for your health. Yeah, like so, sorry if that's what you're worried about. Like let me, yeah. let's stop. It's not. This isn't going to the gym three times a week. Yeah, professional sports not good for your health. I also, I just had a thought there as you were talking. I, I think the other reason maybe there's a fatigue is if you chart like you use the hundred meters example, Bernard, the dirtiest race and the way that exploded into the consciousness of even like the most naive person was like, oh my god, they're all on drugs, and so I think and then cycling really came to the fore in you know the 90s and the build up to Lance and there was this sense of my god it's it's rotten let's get on top of it and let's sort it out i now think the general public has realized oh there's no sorting this out yeah. this will never be solved out so back to your 100 meters race i would now worry the general public are like in contrast with the dirtiest race i think the general public are now oh like i know they're all probably that's you know fairly or otherwise they're probably there's drugs involved here but I'm going to watch this anyway. I want a ticket. I'll yeah. pay the sorting amount. My, this was my first experience of that acceptance of, of drugs or normalisation of it was, um, I think it was in Grenoble in around 2013, 14. And we went to Altuez for a stage of the tour with mm. my medical team. And um, I was in the car with them, whatever. And we saw these cyclists, obviously, they'd cycle 140k before they got to the, the climb. Mm. And we watched them, like, go up, whatever. And I remember coming back in the car and, um, and your, talk. Your mic has fallen. Sorry. Somewhere, by the way. Uh, it's all right. We'll, yeah. um, we'll get it sorted out. Just the clip is all we're looking for as okay. opposed to the oh, that's box. Um, oh, yeah, the battery's gone. Yeah. I tell you what, I'll sort that out. You speak into my microphone for a second. Yeah. So um, I remember coming back in the car and just talking about... Um, They'd, there'd been a raid on one of the teams in, in the week previous and they'd found they'd found drugs and um, they uh, they found drugs in in one of the, the team hotels and I, and I was saying this is scandalous like whatever and they were like well sure it's normal I mean how could you do that without how could you do that without ha- having drugs to be able to go day by day you know 140k a day and then these climbs and like, they were just totally accepting that this is this if you don't if you can't do, if you, can't, if you don't take drugs, you won't be able to compete. Yeah, you know. And um, I suppose for me, but I suppose in cycling, obviously, it's 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 cultural. And, and but I'm sure, as as Carl points out, it's in every sport. Yeah, you, know? it's the, you use the word. It's the normalisation. Yeah. I think, and I think the, the naive period is over, and it's now the kind of yeah, we're not going to sort it out. So why am I losing sleep over it? I, yeah, I, I think that's the, a lot of fans now is how they watch sport. It is, I and mean, like it is, it, it's sad ultimately that that is where it is but it is but again it is one of the many elements now of professional sport whether you talk about live golf or you talk about all these things where you're like okay there is uh there is um uh a uh, uh, moral issue here that you somehow have to kind of negotiate um you could talk about Qatar talk about all these things um, and again, that is this is now one element in, a, in of that area where you're like in a in a. And I think you also you can't like the alternative of saying 
it's a very strange one because you'll hear them saying we're okay with it. Yeah, of course. It's also like because like you, you said yeah. you know like if you actually were watching a hundred meters and you, you were told uh, you know the age, the nationality, and the drugs each athlete is on as they line up. It would, you know, that suspension of of disbelief. I think the would, N- would 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 be gone and yeah. it would be ruined. The so N- you, the NFL is quite interesting. Yeah. yeah, the way they're so like, uh, you know, Dion's out with an ankle. Yeah. Bernard's done his knee, mm-hmm. and Joe got done for HGH. For three, and be yeah. back they'll, be, they'll like, both be back in two games. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because they don't care. So, like, again, that goes back to Carl's point about you know the the willingness of the authorities to stamp it out. The NFL could say two year bans. Yeah. But why would they take the people who are uh, bringing, what, yeah, you know, why you know, bringing the money in? Yeah. Like, you know, if you if if the Premier League started doing that, and you know, like just ban, ban, they'd be like, "What are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing?" And uh, it's just not. It's an, it, it is true. It's not in anyone's interest. And then there would be no. There would be so little public appetite for it as well. Mm. Uh, because of the reason we've outlined, because you would have the supporters of X, Y, and Z saying, "No, mm. this was actually uh, this was whatever the the excuses are used for for doping." Yeah, you know, this is what what we found here. It's funny as, as we move off it. The one thing which kind of counteracts my um, my sense is I do think in this country there's still a huge stigma if you were caught. Oh, whatever, yeah. Joe. I don't think that has oh. maybe because we're a smaller country, perhaps. But I think if um, <laughs> I pluck big names there, but if if big you know household names fail the test, it would one eighty their um, it, it wouldn't their reputation. Yeah, 100%, yeah. Yeah. I still think. But that's always and is this that is the again it's a fascinating area about doping because it's cultural and yet it is always the people get like that get caught. That are the people you know who who rightly, but they're the people we uh, you know who are you know in, like who are black who are blacklisted yeah, yeah. and who are who are ostracised, and yet you know we're it, it's sometimes it's like well, we can go after these people, but we don't we want to look away in terms of whether what what's actually happening. But I think that with was the sport. Paul Kimmage's point in Rough Ride. This isn't. I'm going to grass on these two yeah, individuals. Yeah. It's like you realize the whole thing is. A bit yeah, but at the same time, everybody. It's just human nature. Everyone wants names. If, oh, I, yeah. if you know, if you say here, like I think there's a there's a doping problem in football. Well, watch this subsequent late late interview. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. And you want to say who's you know who, our guys? Yeah, yeah. And like you know, and then it's funny he mentions Fuentes because I know from writing about that in the past. Uh, you suddenly get into the issue of stuff he said said previously, and he talks about it. Uh, you try and you try and put that in a newspaper. Mm. What even he said on the record previously, no and, and lawyers are going, no, right, you, can't, right. you can't put that in. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. We didn't get to get to everything. Uh, there's a really good interview with M. Hayes. You might want to read it in the uh, Guardian. Donald McRae, the Chelsea manager, there ten years now, and uh, she's quietly gone through a horrific four years, um, which I just hadn't realised. I guess, and she was um, talking about it to. Don McRae and just to give you like a brief sense of this piece I think I suggest you read it on the website but um, he picks it up here by saying the second half of her career at Chelsea coincided with the arrival of her son Harry born only half an hour before Hayes and apologies by the way this is very upsetting I, it might be triggering for uh, huge numbers of people out there this is to do with um, problems around pregnancy so just if you don't want to hear it maybe uh, flick off the radio now because it's 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 so common and so upsetting for people um, Harry 
her son, born only half an hour before Hayes gave birth to his twin brother, Albie, who had died inside her after 28 weeks. And now, writes Don McRae, it feels as if she's been released from four years of hidden trauma. So she went back to work eight weeks after all of this had happened. And her point was, well, what if the interim manager does really well? Like this isn't, you know, you're not guaranteed a job. So she went back and she worked. And so she said, I'm well again. I feel the best I've felt since before I gave birth because the last four years I haven't been right. When I knew I was only going to deliver one live baby, I hadn't actually contemplated I still had to deliver two. I just needed to get Harry into the world healthy. But I realise now why women take a year off work after childbirth because I didn't prepare for the significant hormonal, physical, emotional challenge. My biggest regret was coming back to work after eight weeks. And so she says, um, you know, the moment will never leave me. I feel sad for Harry, doesn't have his brother. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt now, but I accept it. I, I will still have a cry about it every birthday and Christmas. That's normal. But for those first four years, I was trying to survive. I felt exhausted. But I woke up when Harry turned four this May and that was the first time I thought I'm back I'm back so it's an amazing amazing interview with the best manager in uh, the uh, WSL which gets underway this weekend and then uh, very lastly in, in 40 seconds the Griezmann situation mm. uh, maybe everyone knows this is happening I, I, this just blew my mind that this is happening in top level football that he's not allowed that due to the uh, deal that Atletico and Barcelona have that he if he plays more than half of the games for more than 45 minutes, yeah. they have to pay 40 million. Yeah. Uh, so he's not coming, he's been coming on for about half an hour to go. Yeah. And um, scoring all the, he's their top scorer. Yeah. yeah. Top assist. But it, yeah. it tell, shows you another illustration of what a basket case La Liga has become. But actually, reading it, the other thing that struck me, and I'm just, this, I get this, I didn't know this, which uh, I was this, and I get this, all this information from the Quickly Kevin podcast, but I was just thinking he should have done what. Uh, Daniel Amakachi did in 1995. I wasn't aware of this. In the FA Cup semi-final in 1995, Daniel Amakachi, uh, Paul Ryder was down injured in the, and they were playing at Ellen Road and Daniel Amakachi told the trainer that he was coming on without the manager knowing. Daniel Amakachi sent himself on in the FA Cup semi-final, scored twice yeah. and sent Everton to the uh, FA Cup final. Did you know that? No. no. He told, and you can see there's a clip of it. I looked it up, there's a clip of it. I just, as I said, the Quickly Kevin podcast, an interview with Peter Reid and they were talking about this uh, just before it. But he actually, Joe Royal is shouting at the, at the lines, what are you doing? Hi. And again, McCatchy is running on. Quay. So this is what Griezmann, Griezmann just needs to, uh, you know, when, when people aren't looking, he just needs to... Uh, push himself on there I think the Madrid, Madrid Derby's on tonight and yeah. it's free to air and that's why there's a certain interest so um, I mean Sid Lowe paints an amazing picture like uh, the crowd in those 10 minutes before the 60th minute like Griezmann's on on, on what the camera's on him as he's war- ready to come on and the crowd are going ballistic because he's he's their joint top scorer eight times uh, five assists and the the minutes he's come on in in the seven games 62, 62, 64, 63 61, 63, 62 so it's a two year loan from Barcelona obligatory 40 million purchase at the end if he plays more than 45 minutes in half the games he's available. You wouldn't want to get a you know, 15 minute stoppage. That's you, know, you do get 10 minutes. You, I know. You that's know? why they go that's why they don't risk half times yeah. they yeah, go yeah. for the hour yeah, mark. Yeah. They think we're playing it safe. So I wonder will he be able to play 90 minutes on a certain number of games? Maybe they're picking and choosing their, um, their games. It's played, yeah. mad. It's crazy, but again, it is just an example. Like you know, the, and Barcelona in particular. Barcelona have uh, you know they've sold off their television rights. They've all these things. Yeah. We saw it in the summer with De Jong, 
all the kind of, all the elements like it is extraordinary it's why it's why the super league remains a goal for for clubs in spain yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fellas thank you so much that was uh, that was really great bernard jackman Dion Fanning, thank you both for coming thanks john the sunday papers on off the ball